Take It. This is a podcast about film festivals. My name is Jesse Weber, and I'm joined by... Andy Gramuga. Tell Ashley. Emilio Villas. And we are joined by the director of 14, Dan Salit. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> Keep getting great, great guests every week. Mm-hmm. Who, was last, who was last we had uh, Joe Reed, host of This Had Oscar Buzz. Yep. Uh, so to con interesting people to come on this podcast. <laughs> I don't think I know anything about the Oscar Buzz though, so that'll be all right. Because uh, we are talking today about uh, Hong Sang Soo and his uh, the. T- Two recent U.S. releases and the one re-release restoration, and then we're also gonna talk a little bit about 14, I think. So, uh, starting off with Hong Sang Soo, uh, the three movies that uh, have recent—they all came out in June. Uh, I think first, Cinema Guild put out Yourself and Yours, and then uh, Grasshopper put out Hill of Freedom and the restoration of Woman on the Beach. And Woman on the Beach was the one that was in theaters at the time, right? Yes, I believe yeah. so. The other two, actually, at a certain point, they started releasing everything by Hong in New York theaters. And I think right. those, are, those are the last ones that, like, yeah, yeah, yourself and yours especially is the last one. Because right now, Wrong Then came out, and that kind of boosted his profile. And yourself then, and yours was the one right after that, and it kind of got lost, and then everything from there forward because he's got the year in 2018 where he has like three movies yeah yeah there forward come out yeah uh, yeah i mean in the like small amount of research i tried to do about these movies to try and figure out certain aspects of it as some of us are maybe newer to hong than others it's like i guess new york new york and new york theaters have an interesting relationship with hong because even hill of freedom which is like pre right now wrong then the only real reviews i could find of it were new york film festival reviews mm-hmm of of it so it's like they it's a, the city where he premiered i guess it was here but it didn't it wasn't released um and I, I guess you're right i guess it was right now wrong then that made it happen also mm-hmm. i think his romance uh with his leading lady mm-hmm. kind of boosted his profile or maybe yes. he just hit critical mass but at a certain point mm-hmm. it seemed like you might as well put out them all in theaters and so i think it's been since then Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. On, the, on the on the beach at night alone is definitely the first one I heard of anybody like have mm-hmm. discussions around around that time. So I, I guess it might be just his romance with the leading lady that might have boosted his profile enough. And I, guess yeah, just, I think I think I first heard of him when uh, Film Comment did uh, kind of retrospective podcast on him, which I believe was when Right Not Wrong Then came out. Got its kind of regular release. There was a there was an article long ago, I think it was in Film Comment by Chuck Stevens that kicked interest way up in the mm-hmm. the Korean New Wave, and Hong was one of the people I think that was mentioned. And this might have been around the time of his second film or his third film. Okay. Yeah. So how do we want to talk about these movies? Do we want to go one by one? Do you want? <laughs> sure. I mean, we can go. Uh, maybe let's just go sequentially and then feel free to bring in anything else of his you've seen like i uh i live uh fortunately right near the afi silver and they uh i think with the freer sackler gallery have played 
everything since 2018 so everything after yourself and yours so i've seen all that and a few others yeah uh, yeah uh woman on the beach is the first one woman on the beach comes right at the end i think i always think of it as being at the end of a period for him mm-hmm. because the film right after woman on the beach was um uh why am i blanking on the name of my favorite hong film the one that came out in, in 2008 is it night uh, and day? Night and day, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that was like seemed like a little bit of a transformation. And Woman on the Beach feels mm-hmm. to me a little bit like he's getting a little tired of working some of the some of the tropes that he'd been doing. He's even abandoning them a little bit in Woman on the Beach. And then I I feel like he started to like really go for something a little bit different afterwards. So mm-hmm. I think right. it's the last yeah. of, a, of a certain period. Okay. It's interesting, it yeah. The earliest Hong that I've seen, but definitely you get the vibe that it like doesn't have any of his sort of like anomalies or like weird time things. And I was I like so I guess that was like that's his earlier stuff is much more straightforward like rom coms in a way, right? Well, he would when he was I mean he would do these really blatant doubling things. It didn't have the, didn't give you the satisfaction of letting you know why it was being doubled or have any kind of neat conceptual thing to it. He would just do these variations. A woman on the beach doesn't have so much of that. I mean, you see the, you see the kind of fragmentation into two pieces. You see it like split down the middle, but you do have the same people. There's a rough continuity of what's going on. There might be one thing in there that doesn't really make sense except as a doubling but on the whole he's like not going really strongly for the alternate versions thing and just decides to like cut it in two pieces and have some that going yeah mm-hmm. andy i know you said this was your favorite of the three yeah and i mean i i am definitely a total neophyte i've seen like we watched i think two for earlier episodes of the of the podcast right. and then we, like, uh, we were talking about 2009 directors Fortnite maybe a month or two ago so we all watched like you know it all like you know it all yeah. at the time i thought was kind of like a minor one and then i saw it again and liked it quite a bit more yeah, yeah. we also had an episode about 2018 films where we talked about grass uh-huh which is uh, which is maybe my favorite of his that I've watched. Yeah, I like Grass a lot. Too. It's and good. I also, in our best of the dec- best of the decade episode, one of my picks was Right Now, Wrong Then, which is my favorite. <laughs> yeah. For some for some reason, I I think my Right Now, Wrong Then, I I liked it a little bit less than some of his. I mean, I really liked it. I don't know why. I think my two favorites were probably Night and Day and The Day He Arrives. I really mm-hmm. think See? those both kind of excel. Day He Arrives, I think, was the first one that I watched. And um, in retrospect, like, I see, like, I like finding more, like, reviews about it. It seems to be, like, one that is high on a lot of people's list. And uh, I didn't think that it was minor. It was just so also new to me that I maybe wasn't on the level. Because then right after that, I watched Right Now, Wrong Then. And, like, it's a little more clean. Like, uh, yeah. it's a bit cleaner. <laughs> I think he, he takes a little bit of getting used to. He's, yeah. like... You know, he's a weird guy. In the beginning, mm-hmm, right. especially, he like almost wanted to violate people's aesthetic preconceptions about mm-hmm. how you did an episode film or how you repeated anything. It seemed like he was trying to get at you, you know? 
and it, it, it took a little while for me not to disregard it as really, um, you know, well done chaos. Yeah. And, but it, it, it is definitely kind of an absurdist. That's not the word I wanted to use. A kind of a surrealist's uh, anger underneath his variations on, on on narrative ways of playing out narratives. Yeah. Yeah, a payoff director is a good way to talk. Like that's my reaction to all three of these movies that I think right now, wrong then and grass. Grass is maybe the one I like the most the whole way through, but these ones I definitely was sort of like muted on and then by the end I fully was on its wavelength and understood what was happening and enjoyed it a lot and it's interesting to see how he like the way he frames conversations and the way that he doubles stuff up so like because obviously like doubling stuff up is an easy way I guess to like provide context so it's like you put you do the same thing twice and so the second time you see it you understand like what the thesis is because you understand the differences it's maybe like (laughs) <laughs> the easiest form of analysis in the way is just like to recognize a pattern and what's breaking. But you don't understand mm-hmm. why he's doing it twice. Heck. And in fact, there's something weird about the number two when you think about it. If you do something three mm-hmm. times, right. it mm-hmm. three kind of stands in for many. It's like just like almost right. this like deep down thing mm-hmm. in fiction. Whereas if you do something twice, it's expected that it's going to have a very strong relation. Things are going to have a strong relationship to you. And from the beginning, Hong was on to the number two, but he didn't do it in a kind of purposeful way. He just kind of made you a little uncomfortable by doing something twice, not enough to generalize it into a principle, but too many mm-hmm. times to make it a straight narrative. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. things about him that I think are, are a little rebellious. It's interesting. Yeah. The two directors who I've had, the or the one other director who had it, a similar experience with the the Hong experience was I had is kind of similar to Cullen's where I think the first two I watched were also Day He Arrives and Right Now Wrong Then and I didn't quite get it and then I had kind of a breakthrough with On the Beach at Night Alone where I was like okay I see I see and then the uh, but the other similar director who like a movie I think two movies in I had that breakthrough with is actually Claire Denis it was with U.S. Oh. Go Home a few years ago I I had seen maybe Beau Travaille and one other and was like I don't think I really get this and then U.S. Go Home uh, broke it open a little and since then I've, that's a little I've more been... straightforward than some of them not straightforward but a little right. bit more manageable mm-hmm. I must admit I still haven't quite had my breakthrough with, with mm-hmm. Madame Denis um, I mean, I'm sure there are further breakthroughs to come for me, but I, at the very least, since then, I have, I've felt like I'm getting more out of the movies. Yeah, well, I started with Hong on his third movie, uh, mm-hmm. it, it was *The Bride Strip Bear* by Factory. No, what was the name of it? It, it was the, it was the, the one that was called *Oh Sun Yu* in, uh, in Korean. Yeah, it was called *The Bride Strip Bear* by her bachelors. That's and right. and. He was in full on weird mode then. That was basically he just split the movie in half, told the story a second time, not distinct enough that you could feel like he's doing variations on a theme and not identical enough that you could feel as if he's like trying to make a particular point, just trying to unsettle you with his Mm -hmm. way of telling stories and his his use of the uncanny number two. Which is not 
it just has its own unsettling quality, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And to like go back to the number two thing, I think it's it's like for the genre of films he makes, which are like nominally rom coms, even though they're a lot weirder than like a traditional rom com, there's obviously like the easy dichotomy of well, a man and a woman. So it's like there's an easy thing to play off there in terms of like mm -hmm. a relationship to people, the way they respond to each other, the way circumstances change that. Like right now, Ron Den is like the perfect example of that. Just like how circumstantially things happening in slightly different ways, you get different things. There are different reactions and different ways you can glean the, the characters and the performances happening within it. And I think what I respond to about yourself and yours and Grass the most, I think, is that what you talk about, his sort of rebellious spirit, I think those are the movies that sort of have the most direct analog to those, to that sort of spirit within the movie, like uh, Kim and he's character in Grass and the main female character in Yourself and Yours, played by mm -hmm. Lee Joon-young. They're both, like, sort of tricksters, I guess that's up to interpretation a little bit more in, in Yourself and Yours, and they're, like, sort of messing with people and fucking with what's happening in the movie and fucking with the other characters. So it's like, it's yeah. like, admittedly, the easiest way to get into it because it's like, oh, I understand what this character is doing, so I understand what the movie is trying to do overall with its sort of tricks it's trying to play. Although it's like halfway between her fucking with you and Han fucking with you. Mm -hmm. But it's yeah. true. There's some kind of analog there within the film. I mean, it you can tell that part of the impact of the film is that she's going to keep going and you can't believe she's going to keep trying to pull this off. Eventually, she even goes to the boyfriend and says, do I know you? It's like nothing. It's not going to stop. It's going to keep escalating. So mm -hmm. Hong gets his like uncomfortable uh, sense that nothing is stable while still managing to like suggest that it is a little bit of characterization. Yeah, the and just thing? like... No, I was going to say, and just like by the way, by virtue of what the ending is, it's like, there's a simple thing to grasp of like, well, their attitudes shifted a little bit due to like this sort of like con side thing they're both aware of, so now they're in a better place, and that's like a funny thing to think about, but it's also like hints at some truth about... The no. way we respond to things that have happened and the way we treat people moving forward and the way we can just wish that things never happen that doesn't happen in real life, but it through a, a, a weird series of cons could happen in a Hong Sang Soo movie. I think this yeah. is something that you see more in later Hong, actually. In the beginning, I think he was a little more content just to perplex you. But you start to see these really sincere emotions combining with the very weird in-your-face stuff. And definitely you could feel with yourself and yours that like something about this boyfriend who wasn't always the nicest guy in the world could be a little abusive at times, but he's like obviously transcended something at a certain point and he's going to take anything to like regain this relationship. So Han wanted to throw in this really sincere demonstration of love on top of like a really crazy story. Even in Woman on the Beach, the whole the whole thing with Dory, the dog, is so emotionally direct and, and and moving. And you see the kind of sincerity of the guy as he like makes that little bizarre diagram of how he's going to try to get used to the fact that his girlfriend has slept with foreign men. 
there's a kind of sincerity there. And then he ends it with this nice scene of these strangers pushing Coming her car, yeah. pushing her car out of the sand. So you can see that he wants to, he wants to bring in some like very direct, sincere emotions along with all the tangle and craziness. Yeah, I guess it's like a question I would have as somebody who's more familiar with his earlier work is that like in the later work of his I've seen, there are a lot of film directors as characters within it, which sort of makes it easier to read as like, well, there's some sincerity on his part. There's maybe some not autobiography, but it's like there's more his hand is maybe more directly <laughs> some on the scale than like some sort of audience surrogate characters in other films. It's like, did he always used to be the you know, work? I can't remember where the first film directors, I think they came in rather earlier than Woman on the Beach. But, you know, to tell you the truth, I think that that whole thing of like putting a film director in as a character, I think it's kind of a form of humor on his part. I mean, I think he knows that people are going to interpret this as something autobiographical and he has no intention of being autobiographical. And it's just kind of like a wink or a joke. I think, I don't think he's really confessing anything as much as he is playing with a certain convention, the way he plays with so many other conventions, I think, you know, I mean, you could ask him, but I I don't think he's trying to portray himself. Really, It's like, in uh, like, you know, it all, the main character is the filmmaker who's on this festival jury and it's like such a schmuck that he like keeps yeah. sleeping through all of the showings <laughs> of the movies that he's supposed to see. And it's like he just always makes these lead characters such bozos in like his same profession. Um, but uh, <laughs> back on uh, uh, yourself and yours, uh, the critic uh, Sean Gilman had a take that I really liked that was um, that scene at the end where he um, he's the boyfriend like finally meets up with her again and she's acting like or she doesn't know him yeah. uh, that like when he finally is able to like see her like as a person because all these characters keep just like putting her on this pedestal as like this like beautiful person and not like seeing like past it that is like when he's able to transcend I was like oh that's like a great take and then um, yeah just he says, that like, scene you get the feeling that that guy was ready to take anything at that point that he yeah. decided I am not going to screw this one up again Whatever she wants to do, however, however this thing plays out, I am going to take it. And it's not that he has to even try. He has somehow arrived at that point where he wants to take it after having not necessarily always handled everything so well or being so nice. And sometimes he handled things really badly by anyone's standards, certainly by Hans. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's like. It's a perfect, like, humorous premise of just, like, that last scene, because it's like, well, she is pretending to not be herself because she doesn't want to deal with the baggage of what happened, and but also he is has full of regret, so he also doesn't want to deal with the baggage, but they <laughs> both think they want opposite things, but they end up wanting the same thing through, like, sort of coincidence, but also, like, arriving at the same point of just, like, I don't care about what your reputation is or what people think of you. I just care about the person who is standing in front of me, which is like, I, like as we've mentioned, like a very sweet sentiment for a movie that is like extremely sarcastic, kind of. Well, I think that you, like her, it would probably, I would not interpret what she's doing just in terms of psychology. I mean, psychology might be in there somewhere, but there's also this big element of this pure absurdism 
that where like you don't really there might be a vague justification for it, but on the other hand, it's just nuts, and it and yeah. it's it's a it's a structure, and it keeps going. So when she gets to that point where she does it to the boyfriend too, it's got this guy giddy feeling of oh my god, how far is this gonna go? Yeah, and that was it, I felt that sort of like energy when the like guy, the older guy that she dumps comes back and they're both there. I was like, oh my god, what is happening? She's just yeah. doing it again. Yeah, it is like you you can after a while you feel like whatever limits psychology might have imposed on this little game are gone and therefore yeah. and therefore it is a psychological game is it a game with us because you know you could probably see your way through for the most part to some interpretation of the movie where there really was a twin sister i mean i i never really contemplated it but if you wanted to really get realistic about it i don't know even at the yes. end where she's like you know pretending with the boyfriend there is this one moment where she kind of seems to break and she kind of like he says people treat you so badly or something. She says, yes, I've done every I never did anything wrong. It sounds like she's breaking character, but then she goes back into her character of like, do I know you? You're a stranger. I yeah. think Hong likes to just make things a little bit jagged <laughs> like that. Okay. And this, you know what? I had just had a thought and it's going to seem slightly insane and out of left field, <laughs> but... A thing that members of this podcast frequently talk about while not recording is a sketch show on Netflix called I Think You Should Live. <laughs> and it is created by Tim Robinson. And I think a lot of the sketches are just around, are just about people being incredulous and people reacting to situations incredulously. And there's in particular a sketch about like a guy and a girl are on a date. And then yes. a, 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 they share a plate of nachos, and the girl is taking too big scoop, too big of a scoop of like the cheese and the meat on it. So the guy go, then goes to back door complain to the to the waiter about to, to tell him to make up a rule about how she can't eat too much, too much meat and cheese on it. So then the waiter comes and then they have a confrontation because the the lady is immediately like, did you talk to the waiter? What are you doing? And his reaction to it, which is what reminded me of the movie, is just like flat out denying whatever happened and yeah. just keeps going, what? No. And just like, and I think the connection I want to make is I think they're both reacting to something very human of like, well, the ideal in any awkward situation and dealing with people you don't want to deal with is just pretending it's not happening or that you don't know what people are what mm -hmm. people want to do or want to react to. So it's just being like, no, what? What are you talking about? I don't know you. <laughs> that, it's just like it's such a like good nexus for me of like what I like in both comedy and in like drama of just like a natural reaction to something going slightly wrong and but in Hong's case slightly right. That I, I think it's Definitely there, and I think feel like Hong wants the knife edge between that kind of psychological interpretation being possible and just pure out absurdist craziness. And like sometimes it's kind of hard to tell which he gives you a little bit of each, you know, leaves you in this kind of zone. If you come away from the film, just try to interpret everything psychologically. I don't find that like a satisfying way of summing the film up, but it's there. It's there to like kind of like take you in two different directions in my opinion yeah <laughs> i think the funniest scene in that movie 
it's when she has the tables turned on her where she's got these two guys at the table at the same time and she's trying and she's trying to derail it somehow and all of a sudden they find out they're like school buddies and start start like bonding over in the middle of their fight and start bonding and you could see the look on her face she's like in agony, she's like yes. looking at the yes. ceiling. Like she can't yeah. do anything more to signal how uncomfortable she is. Yeah, yeah. and then Nifty runs into her like boyfriend's friend. It's like, yeah, right. Just this <laughs> conflict of all these people. Right. And there yeah. she is. And she doesn't pretend in that scene. To yeah, yes. So don't, do I know you? <laughs> she doesn't do that. She you know, saves that for the more important scene, which her boyfriend is. Is yeah. when she encounters her boyfriend again. Yeah, Lee Yoon Young's performance in it is uh, excellent. It's like, there's a certain aspect, not to read in too much, but like, there's a certain aspect in which I would be curious to talk to an actor who works with Hong a lot because it seems both actor friendly and that a lot of the scenes are just two people talking, so you have a lot of time to work on that sort of stuff, but also like the level of unknowability of just like, I don't know how much Hong would tell them and whether like they themselves know whether it's a con or what's happening and whether mm-hmm. they have to play it. But just, like, the levels of canniness that you can read on her face in different scenes, I think it's, like, excellent. And I think that's a great performance that is very strong. I'm not 100% sure how many movies, if any, she's made with Han besides this one. I didn't look her up. She's not one of the stock company, as far as I can tell. Anybody know whether she has, whether this is her only Han credit? I, I never looked into her. Anyway, um, I, I didn't mean to send y'all to the IMDb. <laughs> uh, I think just like bit parts. I, she has like a part in grass, but uh-huh. yeah, nothing this substantial. Yeah. Well, that yeah, is. She, I mean, yes. Go ahead. No, no please, Andy. <laughs> no, I mean, I just like thinking about like what Amelia was talking about, like in terms of the style, and like I, I would be very interested in like a write like a breakdown of like how he like how he makes a movie. Because, like, those long, I wonder how long, like, how much do they rehearse those scenes before they film them? How much of that is them discovering it on the day? All that sort of stuff is, like, very curious to me about those movies. Because some of these I do have a little bit of a hard time, like, keeping my focus on. And I think perhaps, like, it's, I'm, like, watching all these movies, like, in quarantine, like, in my room and stuff. And I think I would, they would probably play better in a theater and all that to me where I have to focus a little more. But, um, I, I, I am curious, yeah, what his process is like, how he approaches, uh, the, the, that style of like the long takes with lots of duet scenes and lots of, you know, small, small cast scenes where they are just having a single long conversation. I think um, it's, it's changed it's, yeah, interesting. over the years, yeah. but these days for sure. And you could probably tell is they're improvised. He does these right. like t- 10 minute. He like tells the actors, you know, he gives them real soju if they're drinking and he says like, okay, be brave. Let's go. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and, and they and a lot of those things are improvised, and he takes a lot of like, crazy stuff that he wouldn't right. maybe maybe have written. Um, I don't know if it was always that way. I don't get the feeling that was uh, the case in the first I don't know seven eight films as much, but but at a certain point you started seeing these really long takes and a little bit of looseness in them, and I'm, I'm I, I do believe he is. That's I mean, I've, I've read, I've heard him say that right. it's improvised. Yeah. And I don't know for sure that it started at a certain point, but I do think it accelerated at a yeah. certain point. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly react to them the same way I react to a lot of improvised stuff, in which is like sometimes my eyes glaze over the screen, but then like 
you find the moment of like perfect humanity in them of like a thing that couldn't have been like rehearsed that you were like oh that's like human in a way that i didn't expect and it like really draws you in like there's a moment in hill of freedom with another like the first scene where her where the main character and the shop la- shop owner lady have like sex and are like sitting intimately in the bed it's like I've never seen that sort of scene portrayed that way in the way that they're sort of awkwardly fumbling around to kiss each other and the way that they're like, sometimes they're looking forward to not look at the other person and the reaction on their faces in ways that are like, huh, that's, I've never seen that before. That's a very interesting way to do a scene like that. So to hear that they're improvised, it's like, it's yeah. like, it's good to hear, but it, I guess it's not surprising. It's interesting to me that he, uh, I don't know if he hasn't pioneered, I don't think, this technique of really getting his actors drunk on soju, but I do believe that is the standard of those. Those drinking scenes have real drinks, mm-hmm. and uh, some people would would prefer to fake that and yeah. like, create the effect by acting, but I think this is just his kind of fate bet with the universe. He just right. tells them, yeah. be brave, yeah. <laughs> and they're really uh, drinking. I guess the number yeah. of takes you do is a, is a factor there. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> it does. It makes me think of, uh, we talked about uh, uh, my first film, the Zia Anger. Uh, it was a live stream the way we saw it. Uh, and she she talks in that film about, oh, as a very yeah. young filmmaker, kind of having made that bet and very nearly losing the bet. And it's really devastating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky business. But Hong, I, I I keep saying this. I guess I think there's something about him that is rebellious and unconventional for the sake of it. And I just think he really likes yeah. the idea of not playing it safe with those scenes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, and I guess it's a benefit that he like linked up with Kim Min Hee, who is maybe one of our finest drunk actors. <laughs> She's done some good scenes. You know, the actress in Yourself and Yours is pretty famous and not from his movies, although she's been in one or two. Her name's Moon So Ri, and she was, uh, she, one of her big performances was in this film Oasis by, uh, right. by the Parasite guy. Um, it's, uh, it's Lee Chang Dong, right? Yeah, yeah, and she's kind of amazing in that movie, actually. She keeps going through these, like, transformations mm-hmm. over and over from being this paraplegic, or not a paraplegic, a kind of a, a, a can't think the right word, a disabled person, and kind of coming out of it imperceptibly in the middle of these scenes. It's a really extraordinary mm-hmm. performance. Um, but I think she's had a, at least one other uh, movie with, Hong. It might be uh, Harrison Sunni. Anyway, she's been in his films, but I don't think she's known for being in his films. I think she's known before that. Yeah. Right. I looked her up, and she also the other the I think the other thing that I've seen her in is she's got a cameo in. Um, the Handmaiden as uh, oh. Kim and Hee's character's aunt. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Well, she she was a, I mean, she's an impressive actress in her own. It's like, I don't really know enough about Korean cinema to know her standing, but I right. think that she's actually well known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody who entered the Hong universe later as opposed to the creation of that universe. 
Well, I mean, the one that we haven't talked as much about, and I, I understand why, because it's both the one that I responded to most, but also was baffled by the most, which is Hill of Freedom. I think that, uh, you know, you get that that's where he has this very, it's clear what the framing device is of all these letters being dropped, uh, and you, so you get the scenes in jumbled order. Uh, and I, it's interesting, there's, uh, I was reading Richard Brody's review of it, and he, he kept talking about a la Rene, but without mentioning uh, Je t'aime, Je t'aime, which is the <laughs> obvious comparison point in terms of jumbled scenes, though that's, a, that, that's an explicitly science fiction premise of uh, a malfunctioning time machine. I think this is once again, Hong, like joking with us a little bit. Like, I think there's this obvious structure and the letter being spilled on the steps. I think it's like a setup rather than a true key. I think he's like playing with our heads a Mm -hmm. little bit. And then he's going to do what he wants. Like, we don't know what the missing scene is. Is it it Mm -hmm. the scene of beating up the the boyfriend? That's one candidate, but there's a few other candidates. I think that there's like a little bit of a nod, a wink at the audience. Like, okay, mm-hmm. here's a justification. Now I'm gonna go nuts right. and do whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, you you would be ill. You, you have a hard time finding the key to a Hong structure. I don't think he right. has one and wants us to have one. Right. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. That's like what I love about his movie so much is that you can ascribe so much to it. Like, there's people with, like, so many, like, deep theories on, like, what happens in a movie like uh, Claire's Camera and, like, and this one. And I think uh, it's in Hill of Freedom and Yourself and Yours. There's so much weight that people who, uh, like, talk about his movies put on his use of a dissolve instead of a cut and, like, what it means thematically. And it's just, like, that is why, not exactly why, but that is just one of the reasons why. I find him so fascinating as a filmmaker, and it's like the same thing of the structure is like, yeah, this is what it is, but does it matter at all? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's purposeful. I think he likes to do what he does. He changes sometimes. I just don't think his purpose is like for nerds like us to like actually get everything nailed down in the right <laughs> yeah. place. I don't think right. his purpose is for us to come away and say, okay, there's page seven of the letter. Right, yeah. It's followed not, yeah. by page like, two of the letter. I, right. I think he's like, Screwing with our heads. I'm yeah, mm-hmm. not not a Christopher Nolan movie. No, at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like well, you do get out of that film, which is really a little distinctive among the films that we're talking about mm-hmm. here. You get this feeling of dissolution. You get this feeling of unhappiness. You get this feeling of being mired in a depression or in places you don't want to be, both psychologically and geographically. You get scenes where you, you know, the character ends up ends the scene locked in a toilet, or scenes where the character is sleeping for some reason and missing things because he's sleeping so much. There's this very dark thing that kind of comes together and dominates that film. And towards the end, you have this kind of like happy ending announced, but not right at the end. It's like, oh, we finally found each other. We got married. We had two children. But that's not the end of the movie, and it doesn't dominate the tone. That's like another head fake. Instead, yeah. instead, you, what you come away with, what I come away with anyway, 
it's this pretty dark sense of unhappiness and waste and uh, being stuck in a certain psychological place. Yeah, that's. I do find um, the movie, like a lot of his movies, generally like it's got some like funny moments, but like the sadness is so present in like uh, Rio Kase's performance. Like he's like a lot of, like even in like the scenes like usually in a Hong movie like when they're like drinking there's like fun in some aspect of it and he always is like so sad and then like uh, I think like the only time he's like visually happy is when like him and like the guy who lives with his aunt at like the hotel are uh-huh. like walking home but like, other than that he is always like sad and like uh, not really like energetic at all and yet that's like I think he's like a very good performer because he's also in um, Kiristami's like Kurosami? someone in love. That's yeah. the only thing and I do. Like, he plays like with... a real uh, pill in that one. <laughs> yes, he worked with Van Zant on one of the oh, Van Zants that no one saw. Uh, uh, Restless, I think. Okay. By the way, that actor who lives with his aunt and yourself and yours. He was the star of Han's very first film. Oh. And then okay. he left. I mean, there wasn't really as much of a stock company for a while. Then he wasn't in a Hong Kong for a long time. And at a certain point, he came back, unlike any early Hong actor I could think of. And then he's, like, in everything. Hong just, like, uses yeah. him all the time. But I don't think a stock company really came together too strongly until the second half of Hong's career. I'd mm-hmm. have to really, like, watch everything closely to try to pinpoint it. But it, yeah. when it came together, this guy signed up. Yeah, I've I've mostly only seen, like, his 2010s movies, and it's, like, the lead of Day He Arrives is in a bunch of them, uh, Kim and He's in a bunch of them, Yeah, it's just, like, yeah, it's, like, it's it, it's not helpful, but it is, like, it puts you at ease to see, like, the same people, <laughs> like, well, you know, those and movies you, and are. Well, yourself and yours, those, like, yeah, exactly. suitors, they're, like, regulars. Yeah, right. The, uh, right. the guy, the kind of forceful guy who's first realizes that they went to the same school. That guy was like the lifeguard in uh, in the one he did with Isabelle Huppert. And so I always, oh, think, yeah. of him, I always think of him as a lifeguard. Uh, but he's been in like a lot of his films, and he's a really like good Hong actor. And the other guy, too, the older guy, he's been in a great many. Uh, Am I wrong? Hong is Hong he Hong. in The Day After? Is yeah, he's yeah. definitely in The Day After. And I want to yeah. say he's in Hotel by the River, too. I think he is. I think he's one of the two children. Yeah. Um, those. But he's a really good actor. He's yeah, good actor. yeah. I love him. I, I love both those guys, actually. The lifeguard, I'm trying to think of his name, and I'm, I'm blanking on his name. But he's a he's a, a more comic, uh, large actor than is always the case with, these, with Hong's actors. But he's really good, really funny in a lot of movies. He almost always plays a kind of larger comic role. And that's that scene where they're just like, uh, who's older? <laughs> it's like, yeah, who's you older? have gray hair, but you're not as old as I am. And they're like, we're the <laughs> same age. And that turns out to be a setup. Yeah. <laughs> that's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> the, um, yeah, Woman on the Beach, I think, uh, it was like the one that I liked the least of these three. Uh, Me too, actually. But I... I think I don't know if it's just because it is like missing in that sort of weirdness that he usually has, but I think um, 
what I do like about it a lot is how he sort of pulls off the like protagonist switch by the end of like switching from the director to the like woman who's there with them. I think is like extremely effective, especially in that end scene when they help her off the beach, um, mm-hmm. and she like sort of uh, has the breakdown and like finds the other woman's wallet and like gives it back to her. And she has to, to mirror the uh, the director's uh, going nuts over the idea of Korean women like foreign men sleeping with yes. even with <laughs> even unattractive Korean women, as he keeps saying. There's that the woman also has her little like you know weak spot that gets hit about being stepped over as the, she has this image in her mind that this man and his lover had to step over her as they were like as she was sleep falling asleep on the doormat yes. she keeps repeating this like a, this insult to her is like more important than than the actual that, scene. that scene is also so funny when they're like climbing out the window just to avoid yeah. her they climb out so, the window to avoid her, and then so she doesn't have any complaint. But there's, of course, no way that they can demonstrate that since they've been lying so much. So yeah. she's just left with this image of these people stepping over her, which is meaningful to her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, you wrote a little blurb for yourself and yours for cinemaguild.com. And which is, I think, very excellent, and people should read it about yourself and yours. And within those series of blurbs, there's a, uh, an excerpt by Peter Kim George, the film critic, who talks about how a later, the later period of Hong's career has been sort of shifting to having like a more female focus and more female protagonists and more of that perspective being shared. And I feel like it's interesting to arrive to that later in your career, and I wonder what it says about the way he made his movies and the way he made his rom-coms. That I think what Colin and I talked about before we started recording a bit is that what we love about some of the, his movies, especially later movies, are how all the guys are just schmucks and they're just all yes. revealed to be lame guys who don't know what they're talking about. And I wonder if that's like... I think that's always been prevalent in his work and just has like has lacked the proper context from like putting a female there or is just or he has just come to the realization that guys are schmuck, which is like pretty <laughs> correct. Well, there usually is a female there. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of the lead characters were men, but there's rarely, if ever, a film where it was just men, where there weren't important female characters. Um, you can kind of see in uh, woman on the beach that when he took the opportunity to turn the woman into an obsessive kind of screaming character, he did it. Um, I think it is probably true that the male characters have tended to be the, the most uh, uh, bumptious and irrational. I am not 100% sure though that Hong has any commitment to like portraying only men in that kind of unpleasant way. I think he just kind of likes to... I I don't think he has a very idealized view of much of anybody, to tell you the Mm -hmm. truth. It's true. It's true that a lot of those scenes are are men for whatever reason, but it doesn't feel like a a practice or a bifurcation of sugar and spice and everything nice versus snips and snails and puppy dog tails. (laughs) Yeah, there is... Like great, I mean, sort of like. Go ahead. I, I mean, no, no, I mean, I mean, I feel like that's true for sure. In that, like, 
And then, I mean, the funny thing about yourself and yours are the way that she is sort of the way yeah. that she is reacting to the same sort of thing and being funny. Uh, but I guess it's just like an easy contrast to make people seem like guys seem like schmucks and just like how they're weird and obsessive and meandering about across the time. But they for sure their female protagonists of the movies are also like very funny and like fun to consider about and just like hilarious in the way that they are maybe avoiding certain things and reacting to certain things. Like, there's that very good scene in yourself and yours where it's like, it has the female friend of them who's just like, both of you are so dumb. Yes. Well, you have <laughs> to understand that men and women are the same and you are just here sitting, drinking sadly about the differences between men and women when you're just being extremely dumb about this that I thought was very funny. I think to some extent, Hong is like, on the one hand, I think he likes to take social archetypes, stereotypes, whatever you want to call them, build on them. And you're going to not see a complete interchange of men and women. You're going to see male and female roles acted out to some extent. On the other hand, I don't necessarily get the feeling that he regards anybody as being, uh, you know, off limits in terms of like showing them to be like uh, uh, socially or uh, or characterized imbalanced or unpleasant. Uh, I don't. I never toted it up, but I don't get a feeling of like idealization from him the way you do with certain filmmakers, where there's where there's a sex that they lay off, which is probably a, a little closer to misogyny than it is to balance. With Hong, for whatever reason, you, you definitely get the feeling that. You know, everybody's fair game. They might not come out exactly the same way, but everybody's fair game. There is uh, just a scene that I thought was so funny in um, uh, Woman on the Beach that, like, is sort of uh, painting one character as, like, a bozo is when they're running on the beach, like, after they've got back together. And uh, he, like, pulls a muscle and he's like, did you kick me? It's such a (laughs) weird, like aggro like I, I, this could have just happened and then he's like in a cast for the rest of the movie and hobbling around with a cane it's just so funny there's something kind of almost touching about the fact that the director <laughs> the director in that movie first goes on this very memorable funny and horrible rant where he's clearly got this thing in his mind that is not corresponding very much to any of what's been brought up this idea of a even the unattractive, you know, Korean women, foreign men, like he just keeps hammering at this and getting angry and angry. But then in the second half of the movie, you see he's like kind of smiling and talking about how he drew this weird ass diagram <laughs> to like try to try to get past this problem and how if you can only like bring one square and another square together and see them as the same thing, it won't bother him anymore. And it's kind of touching. I mean, that he's like, He's, not only is he calm at that moment, but he's gone to such effort to try to like explain the point, yeah. treat, treat this as a problem, and try to get the problem out of the way so he can have a relationship with this woman who he likes. So yeah. there's something kind of sweet about it. the most horrible character, the character that does the most you know outrageous like stuff, is also shown in this kind of calm, smiling way as he tries to deal with it. There are nice little things like that in Hong films, yeah. I think. A lot. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like kind of, again, going back to like the I think you should leave thing of like, does how people struggle to react to things like in a way that seems sensical or coherent. So they just like, and have a difficult time responding to sincerity. So it's just like, whenever somebody like in either in the sketch or in a Hong movie is like sort of having like this positive turn, it always is like the consequence of some like weird or funny or random event, like the the lies in yourself and yours, or like uh-huh. the, the thing you just described in The Woman on the Beach, where it's like, it's not like they have like some grand sweeping romantic thing and then like, they like truly change their heart in a way that's intelligent. It's just like, then just being like, huh, and then doing something kind of stupid and that sort of somehow working out through just like ser- yeah. a series of situations. But it's interesting that once in a while you get this like feeling of regard and generosity, not a, not a matter of principle. He's not going to stop telling people being obnoxious and crazy, but you get a sense that there's this little, there's this kind of emotional thing that he likes to bring out. I mean, you see it also in yourself and yours with the boyfriend having transcended Prack for all intents and purposes, his worldly state and like he's at the point where you know she could do almost anything and he's going to take it because he's like determined to like understand whatever goes down and she's given him a lot to understand there but it's kind of touching and of course there's dory you know there's no way to there's no way to look at dory the dog without feeling like hong just wanted to like break our hearts yeah the uh yeah i definitely think like the scene in uh, Yourself and Yours, like, at the end where they're just, like, not complacent, but just, like, pleasantly eating watermelon together. Watermelon, like, yeah. Very, very touching. <laughs> well, the watermelon's also nice because for a second, you know, he wakes up and, like, she's gone. He's and gone, you, yeah. Uh-oh, another fantasy? <laughs> you And then then he returns with the watermelon. And it, so, it, and among other things, it's a signal to us, like, oh, it's not a fantasy. I'm not yeah. leading you down the garden path again. They're going to finish this film eating this delicious watermelon. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And just like... Well, just, no, you go ahead, Justin. I was just going to ask if anyone has any maybe closing thoughts on Hong uh, before we move on to 14, though, of course, we can always... It's a topic we can always reopen, <laughs> given that there's... Yeah, going to be a new movie pretty much every year. That's right. <laughs> there's there's one in Berlin already. I think I've heard he's at least started shooting another one. Yeah, thankfully, I hope that uh, I hope that nothing slows him down. He's been he's been yeah. accelerating over the years. He used to do a film right. every two years, and mm-hmm. he just decided at some point this isn't fast enough, <laughs> and he he well, like I think re-engineered his method so that he could do I think the last year there was a little break and I'd heard there were maybe some health issues but yeah, he seems to be was. back now sorry he had a stroke okay oh, wow. yeah um oh. and uh and, he, and he's okay I mean yeah. that happened we, we've we, we've seen him many times since that stroke mm-hmm. but yeah yeah well, yeah because I think uh when we were, I was at TIFF in 2018 Hotel by the River was playing and then everyone also was also like grass is also like already playing festivals. <laughs> yeah. And just like they both sort of didn't come out like uh, globally, I guess, until uh, 2019. But yeah, um, he did like three films that one year. Right. Yeah. I think that was 
that year I think was Grass at Berlin and then both the day yeah. after and yes. Player's Camera and... On the Beach at Night Alone? I can't remember. I think on the beach at night alone was maybe you might you might the year before. you might you might have <laughs> yeah yeah I mean as long as he keeps putting out I'll keep watching him I've yet to see a movie that I've like not been at the very least like very into <laughs> yeah, I, I think mean, I think history is going to uh, look very kindly on Hong in this period I think history is going to look at him as one of the dominant creative figures of this period. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, um, I don't often watch a movie. I like often when I watch a movie, I was like, oh, it's good that they did that, and that seemed, and it's like that must have been a lot of hard work. And it's like Hong is one of the few filmmakers who I've seen who have been like, you know what? It'd be interesting to make a movie like that. He's, he's <laughs> like, there's an energy to them, and there's like a, a style to them that I like really respond to in that sort of way. And that like, they're sort of inspiring for how like sarcastic they are. And that's like my main takeaway on Hong is that like, it, it seems like the process of making them seem very fun. And I'd be very, and I want them to keep making movies forever. They're like inspiring and they don't look that hard to make, but there's, there's a very strong personality behind them. Mm-hmm. So that's what, that's what we would have to kick into the mix if we decided we were going to try to do that. Yeah. yeah, and and I feel like often with a lot of like international tours, there's like a lot of people who like make a movie every two years or a movie every year that you're just like, do we really need another Darden movie this year? And it's like people <laughs> make like they make like 19 of them, but and like Hong is somewhere was like he can make if you told me he had three movies out tomorrow, I'd be like sure he can make as many of them as he wants. Put it. I, put I that agree in. with you. I'm a big Darden fan, so I have to I have to register that. <laughs> yeah. so how many other people you could have gone with Emilio I mean you, listen, missed a, you missed a prime opportunity to mention our patron saint Ken Loach <laughs> 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 but yeah okay. and he's, he's the, the woman who ran Cinema Guild has it it won best director at Berlin I'd imagine it'll be out within the next year uh, depending on what kind of uh, impetus there is to make sure it gets a theatrical release. Uh, there was a time when you wanted to make sure you caught them at the New York Film Festival or wherever that, I mean, I'm in New York, so I mean, and if I hadn't caught, you know, yourself and yours or Hill of Freedom, I don't know how soon I would have seen them again. But now yeah. I think we're past that. Yeah. yeah, and like when I read the, I read, go went back and read the New Yorker review for Hill of Freedom to try and get a little bit more of a handle on it, and it it, it for sure had a line in there that was like, we I love Hong Sang Soo, I don't know if his movies will ever get distributed. There's like sort of weirdness around it. It's a, it's at the New York Film Festival right now, and you should watch it right now because who knows yeah. when you could watch it. Because it was written back then, and obviously they didn't know that now it would be available to everybody. Which is and I get the feeling that now we're always going to have some little distributor, or not little, just not huge. You're going to have some distributor picking them up and finding it worth their while right. now, I hope, anyway. It seems that way. Yeah, Cinema also, Guild's been pretty consistent about Cinema it. Cinema Guild and Grasshopper are on yes, the case right now, for sure. Uh-huh. Since more people should make 66-minute movies like Killer Free. Yeah. <laughs> is that, is, I wonder if that's, a, 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 in terms of distribution, a liability. It might be. Some people look at 66 minutes and they say, that I'm not getting my money's worth. 
Right. Right. Well, that, I know it. I know it often is in terms of festival programming. I hear about how you have to figure out if it's like in the anywhere in the like 30 to 60 minute range. It's always like you have to figure out, do I have to put a short with it? Do I put it with right. another one of this length? And it is that's the like the big thing I hear about submitting films to a festival is don't submit one that's like over 20 or under 75. See, this is what really probably separates the hardcore people from the occasional theater goers. When you, when a hardcore film buff sees 66 minutes, it's like, oh, awesome, great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you don't go to films that often, if you want a nice night out, you want to get the popcorn and like, you mm-hmm. know, hire a babysitter and stuff, then Maybe 66 minutes movie. might not feel right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I do. I have uh, some questions uh, prepared about 14. Maybe uh, maybe I'll start by asking about uh, kind of the writing process and how the structure came together. Did the uh, did you kind of map out what each scene was going to be at the beginning or did it more kind of flow naturally? Well, I map everything out at some point. Mm-hmm. The beginning is hard to say. Actually, the, the very beginning of this process was me realizing that I didn't couldn't count on getting enough vacation time from my day job to shoot an entire movie at once. Because, you know, a, a shoot for a low-budget film is usually done in, like, three weeks or something. But mm-hmm. I, I, like, my pre-production is, like, slow and painful. And so I kind of, like... I feel like I went like eight weeks or something in a row to do a movie if I if I'm gonna like if I'm gonna do it all at once and I was just in a situation where I didn't know for sure that I could get that time again and so I wanted a movie that I could do in pieces that could mm-hmm. cover years instead of like what I usually do which is more unity of space and time right. and so it, it started there actually it started with that need. And there are other factors that fed in, like I wanted to make a film with Tally again and with mm-hmm. another actress who turned out not to be in it. And um, I, I got the character structure from people that I was hoping to work with, from things I'd said to them, scenes I wanted to do with them, stuff I'd seen them do that I knew they could do well, like Tally and Children, for instance, I think is like mm. ham and eggs, a really good combination. Um, so those things all fed in. But the basic idea of jumping through time came from the need to have a movie where I could shoot it in pieces, not worry about continuity, not worry about um, having to like keep everything the same. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, speaking of uh, of Tally, I wanted to ask because I know her from uh, the Cocoon Central dance oh, yeah. team, so, who I saw perform on the Chris Gethard show uh, I think oh, yeah. around the time the unspeakable act came out was when they first appeared or actually I know it's the same year because I remember their their second appearance was when they did a 12-hour election special in 2015 <laughs> they were there for maybe an hour of it but I wanted to ask how you met her and then the other two members are also in the unspeakable act they are yeah I um I, I, Tally was recommended to me by Joe Swanberg, the filmmaker. Um, when I was, um, starting to make the unspeakable act, I was doing a gear shift. I'd been working with other actors for a long time 
And this was all of a sudden a film with teenagers. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really like his taste in, in acting. I asked a lot of people for recommendations, but his recommendations tend to pan out for me. And he recommended four people, and I wound up casting or trying to cast all of them to some extent. And Tally was one of them. He had uh, he had seen a film that she did with uh, Daniel Shainert when they were all mm. at Sidewalk Film Festival in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And I think he'd met her, but he definitely admired her. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I... That's how I uh, heard about her. And when okay. I met her, uh, the way I was uh, casting that movie, Unspeakable Actors, I was like meeting everybody, just chatting with them first. And Callie like came to chat, but she was for some reason very guarded in the chat, like not showing, not, not auditioning in any mm-hmm. way for mm-hmm. anything. And then I went home and started watching all of these clips and these amazing things. And that night as I'm watching these clips, I kind of had this like, that's the person, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Although I, I went through the whole process and tried to make uh-huh. sure cat and gave everybody sure. a chance, but I was like real quickly like, whoa, you know. Yeah. I, um. So that was that was that was Swanberg, who's got amazing okay. amazing sure. taste yeah. in, in uh, not so much performances as people. Okay. I think for Joe, yeah. the whole the whole. The, the, the difference between people and characters is not the most important thing. Those blend for him a little bit. It's his style. It's his whole approach to cinema. Um, and I like that, actually, mm-hmm. even though I don't make films exactly like he does. But mm-hmm. I, do, I do like that uh, uh, blend. Speaking of uh, Swanberg, just a quick aside. I do know that for his movie Drinking Buddies, they use real alcohol also, just like concert <laughs> style. So... Uh... <laughs> I didn't realize that actually. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that was like I saw an interview with like Jake Johnson where he was like one of the biggest selling points was like I was in Chicago and we had like free beer on set. Joe's a big uh, beer fan. I was during those years when we knew each other. I was deep into the whole third wave coffee scene, and, uh, <laughs> and Joe was deep into craft beer. So like when we would see each other, like. When I went to Chicago with people act, you know, he would take me to some places to, you know, try the beer, and I took him to like the coffee shops that I knew mm-hmm. were yeah, hot. Like the whole episode, uh, or like one of the uh, parts of the his anthology series, Easy, right. is like the two brothers who do the brewing, yeah. and then um, some of the best, this, some of the best scenes. I really yeah, like mm-hmm. the first one, especially Brew Buddies. I think it's one of the best episodes. Mm-hmm. So I had, uh, I guess, a very specific shot question. Uh, I was noticing throughout the movie there, there's very little camera movement. There's like maybe uh, six or seven scenes where just because someone is moving, the camera is tracking them. But then at the very end, we have this pan from yeah. Lorelai to Mara when Mara gets the phone call that Joe has died, I was wondering where that pan came from. Good question. <laughs> I like that. I like that question because that's like a meaningful thing to me. When I did this pan, it's like, it's a little bit different, isn't it? And I don't think mm-hmm. it's not something a lot of people pick up on. It was like a practical thing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, I, I originally planned, 
something different for an environment that I didn't have yet. Maybe mm. a shot of Lorelei through a doorway playing with some stuff in another room and then a cut. But when we got to the place where we had to shoot it, I needed to, or at least when I knew where it was going to shoot it, I had to reconceive my original storyboard in such a way. And I decided somewhat atypically for me, so hat tip for, for a good <laughs> spot there. I decided somewhat, somewhat atypically that that was the way I should do it, that that pan, which would not be my usual thing, would be okay because the pan would, among other things, signal that this was not, it, it mm-hmm. would draw attention to that scene as a momentous scene. In fact, mm-hmm. it's, it's a scene of death, you know? Right. So, so I, it was one reason that I felt free to do that thing, which I wouldn't have felt free to do just mm-hmm. any old place in the movie. Right. I figured there must be an intent there because I read the um, uh, it was you quoting from an interview in the uh, the Q&A that Grasshopper did about the, the very long shot of uh, Tally's character arriving at the uh, um, yeah, the train, uh, the train station. station. Yeah, which I had I had to pull up again. I watched the movie. uh for the second time last night with my parents and my mom and me, as soon as it ended, it was like, what was with that shot? <laughs> so I had to, had to, was glad that I had, I had read that Q&A and had that uh, answer to pull up <laughs> had immediately. My answer. Well, you know, there was like, I did it without any thought, question. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. I was bragging about how I was going to like bring the film to a dead stop uh, <laughs> when I was up there in Katona on the set. I was so happy with the shot when it came out. I was even crying a little bit when the camera started to move with Callie and he started realizing what that it was her. Um, and I was like, you know, very, very content with it. It was totally intentional. But very quickly after it was all over, I kind of realized this was going to be a sticking point with some people. Mm-hmm. And you can't hide that you're making an art movie uh, mm-hmm. if, you, if, you, if you decide you're going to like, plant the camera for three minutes and show everything about a train entering and leaving a station. Um, mm-hmm. And I finally decided that I couldn't live with myself if I didn't, if I mm-hmm. cut down or didn't include that, that scene that I had cried uh, over when it was being shot. And mm-hmm. somehow when I made that decision, the tide turned. And after that, I started getting mostly good responses from it. But one way or another, it was like I, had, I decided, got to do it. Can't. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I think, super dangerous to, to second guess yourself. You gotta, mm-hmm. re- you gotta remember what you first wanted. Remember the feeling you had. If you have a different feeling later, you have to be really suspicious of it. Only, mm-hmm. only if you really can convince yourself. You shouldn't just yeah. casually go back on your first impulse because your first impulse was when you were most like the person that's going to view the movie. You were mm-hmm. most fresh. You were most uh, open. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'll say uh, all three of us, me and my parents watching it, I think we were all enjoying the locations because that is very near the part of Brooklyn that uh, my parents lived in when I was born. Uh, they moved to D.C. when I was maybe five months old. So for for them, especially my dad, it was a lot of, oh, yeah, I recognize that place. I know especially the apartment that they're in when Adam... Uh, calls the car to take him to JFK. My dad oh, said, yeah. oh, yeah, that's several blocks from uh, where uh-huh. we lived. Uh, 
Yeah, that I know. Was I la- yeah, last time I walked by there, it was uh, I happened to be <laughs> going to Brooklyn Steel, and so I got for uh, it's maybe like oh, yeah. two blocks away from that. I can't That's remember where Brooklyn Steel is, although I've been there. But that was shot in, that, yeah. that was shot in Greenpoint, actually. Okay, yeah, oh, yeah, oh. I know. He he was saying that a lot, like uh, a lot of it was kind of on the border of yeah. Greenpoint and Williamsburg. But yeah, so that was fun for me. For me, for them, it was kind of oh yeah, I remember <laughs> these places. For me, it was like oh yeah, if they not that they ever really intended to stay in New York once they had kids, but uh, had they, that's where I might have grown up. That's where you might have grown up. It's, mm-hmm. like, fun to, like, do a lot of locations in a place without being show-offy about it. It's mm-hmm. fun to just, you know, because you, you know it's going to seep through. You know it's going to be part of the movie. Um, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to show the Empire State Building or you don't have to show Brooklyn yeah. Steel or whatever. You know, you <laughs> might, might sure. your own landmark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to say, as a person – like from an island who still lives on an island, I am largely unfamiliar with those parts of New York. It's because like they're never depicted in a movie. Like for the first half of the movie, I legitimately did not know where it was set until somebody said the word Brooklyn. So and I thought it was like very good. It was like it made it feel more lived in. It like made you feel like these are these are real people who are like commuting and having a real life and not like the typical New York like. The big city, the apple, these gals yeah. walking around. They seem like real people that you and I would know and talk about. And it's nice. And I, I don't think you have to worry even that much when you're making a movie about it. You just trust that the way you shoot things is going to show a little bit of the environment and people are going to pick up mm-hmm. on a vibe. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, the unspeakable act also was like the home was in uh, Ditmas Park, which is a, mm-hmm. a part of Brooklyn that not everybody right. knows. This one was partly Fort Greene. A lot of it was in Prospect Leopard's Garden or a few other places, Greenpoint, others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess... Wanna, oh, oh, go ahead, Colin. I was going to say, I do want to like say, uh, not that it's comforting, but I do use specifically saying like that uh, Tally was great with like children. Just re- it reminded me of like my favorite scene is when she's like telling the bedtime story of like how she first met um, the friend is like, I think also like unquestionably like one of my favorite uh, lead performances of the year so far is hers. And that scene is like the linchpin of it. Uh, And then also she deserves a lot of credit for it because you can't, I wrote a script, she memorized the script, but you can't hold the script when you're working yeah. with a, a right, five-year-old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she, so she was pouring backstory out. You could see that she thought about the script. She had to say things that weren't in the script. And it was just mm-hmm. like this stuff was, she had a guideline, but she was just like mm-hmm. giving what she thought was going on behind the script. It was kind of beautiful to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, just on the structure of it, I when we did our episode talking about it, I mentioned Jane Campion's two friends, oh, and yeah. I just was out uh, that it's like not the same, uh, but it's like the friendship in reverse of like they're not friends at the beginning, and then it shows like how they became friends at the end, and I was like sort of like I mean obviously not the same, but like when I watched it, it was a big thing. I just was wondering if like that was yeah. a movie that was in your head at all. Or it wasn't in it. my head. I've seen it. I think I've seen it twice even, and I liked it. Um, but I wasn't, in my mind, I mean, this is like a weird thing to say, so take it with a grain of salt. In my mind, it wasn't primarily a film about 
friendship or the texture of friendship that just kind of followed with it. It was a film about losing somebody, mm-hmm. trying hard to hold mm-hmm. on to somebody mm-hmm. and not maybe seeming like you're trying really hard all the time because you just can't take it and because time's passing, but you couldn't do anything. You were helpless in the face of, of it. And it was about like a really deep love that you don't see that because most of the surface stuff is frustration and disappointment. But under the surface, there's this like great glowing love that this whole yeah. thing was built on. You only see it here and there. That was really what I was trying to do. So I, everything about how a friendship might be, that was just like added stuff, secondary stuff, stuff that was built on uh, mm-hmm. love and loss. Yeah. And we, one of, go ahead. I was going to say that one, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, it's like, I think this is uh, something you might often get talked about in the movie, like Joe's big breakdown and her mm-hmm. crying. And, her, and there are things about that scene that I like, Never seen depicted that like accurately as somebody who might have had a breakdown or two once in or two <laughs> in his life of like just how uh, Norma is that yeah Norma okay. just how she played it of like you both want to be the center of attention but she's also like hiding out in a corner of a room because she doesn't want people to look at her but she wants people to see her and the way that she is like sort of trying to respond reasonably to things, but not unreasonably things the other, and the way that Tally is being, like, almost frustratingly reasonable with her. Mm-hmm. And how was that scene to shoot, and how was it to write? It was both, it was both fun, both, because um, Norma, Norma wanted that scene. <laughs> she really wanted to do it, and she really, you know, did an awesome job of it. And Tally's contribution to me is really important also mm-hmm. because it's in a way it's it's more in question what's going to be on the other side of the room than what happens with Joe's side of the room. Tally was so angry. She had like said things that she doesn't often say to Joe. She decided that she was going to go back in once more and try to help. She still had attachment. But she wasn't going to go on the emotional roller coaster ride with Joe. So there's this big mm-hmm. contrast between Joe kind of dancing on the edge of a breakdown, like trying to keep control of the conversation, but every now and then failing to keep control of the conversation. And Tally being sympathetic from a certain distance. Um, but it was, uh, we, we, did, we did Norma's conversation three times, and then Norma said, I don't think I could cry anymore. And I said, don't sweat it. We got it. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we turned around and did Tally's side. It was it was really a, a great thing. For what it's worth, that scene was inspired by a, a kind of a famous scene in, in John Eustache's movie, The Mother and the Whore. Um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a crying scene. Filmed a little similarly with the actress Françoise Lebrun. Um, I, I actually met Françoise Lebrun at a, at a at a screening of *The Mother and the Whore* in uh, New York. I think it was at the Metrograph, and I just kind of mm-hmm. mentioned to her that I kind of borrowed that scene, uh, and she was like, "Oh yeah, no, she wouldn't do that." Every every too too many French films with crying girls, you know, based on that <laughs> scene, you know. She didn't really want to be a model for a generation of crying girls. 
<laughs> Actually, also had a question about that scene. Uh, I was reading uh, Mike D'Angelo's Letterboxd review, and he mentioned he had a conversation with you and that you uh, emphasized the exchange about um, whether or not uh, Joe kind of is her anxiety and eccentricity and how that was kind of a key to the film. And I was wondering if you'd expand on that a little bit. I don't think, you know, I did, I read that thing that Mike said, and I, I, I don't think that it was as big a deal in my mind as all that. Um, that was a line that was actually said in real life sometime in the late 80s or early 90s by someone, and I just remembered it. I don't know if she knows that she got quoted in my movie, but I remember that kind of feeling of, like, that there's something in you that's valuable and okay. something that's yeah. something that's pure and there's other stuff that gets in the way and they don't those things don't have the same weight for you. I don't see it as a to me it's not a philosophical issue of whether those things really are her or not. Um or it's mm-hmm. not even okay. a question of whether Joe sees herself as bifurcated because I think we all see ourselves as that way. Joe knows that there's things about her that are problems for people. She also knows that there's things in her that are valuable and good and true. And it's a wish that she's suggesting, I think, more than it is a philosophy of personality. Yeah, and you briefly mentioned that Norma really wanted to do that scene. Like, I guess in the episodic nature of the film where they're like whole scenes that you maybe cut after writing or cut when you were shooting or editing the film that like either didn't make sense or like sort of superfluous to what was going on that maybe didn't make it to the final version. There were, there were zero scenes that were cut. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not my nature. Uh, I mean, there might be somewhere in my career, some scene that I shot and cut. I can think of one. <laughs> it's not my nature. I'm like this obsessive compulsive mm-hmm. kind of planner. I wrote the thing mm-hmm. with those gaps. The gaps were part of the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, the gaps were somewhat inspired by Maurice Pilat's way of making movies, and particularly his movie Ad Nos Amour, which um, does that kind of stuff too perfectly. You know, this kind of feeling of time vanishing between the cuts. Um, but uh, it's that's just a temperamental thing. It's not me. It's not me that like the idea of shooting a scene and not using it. it I see it as something that happens once or twice in a career when, a, when something really bad happens, as opposed to a practice. I I like a very committed to most of the things that go into my scripts, and I uh, I, I don't leave them behind very easily. You didn't just write a bunch of letters and drop them before making the movie. No, I certainly <laughs> didn't. <laughs> and, uh, I it no, Hong definitely has a looser aspect. Oh, in this case, I think Hong was like joking. So I think, you know, but I, I think that I, you know, don't trust myself to have all the material in the editing room to get exactly the structure I want. I definitely have to try to plan the structure that I want in advance mm-hmm. and get it. And the idea of changing that structure in the editing room, that to me is reserved for really calamitous situations, not for standard operating procedure. So as a podcast ostensibly about film festivals, which has obviously been hard the last six months, yeah. uh, 
I'm I'm just curious about what it was like uh, premiering the film at Berlin. It was fun. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I I was accepted by both Berlin and Rotterdam. I've been to Rotterdam once before, and I really loved Rotterdam. I felt bad, but I I turned them down in favor of Berlin. Um, it, interestingly, like when you go to a big festival, there's it's less about you, you know, and so. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like the same kind of like, it's not people like throwing palm branches in your path or anything <laughs> when you go to Berlin. But, um, but I had a good old time and I love Berlin as a city. And, um, it was obviously, you know, it's one of the three old, old, right. like premier festivals of the universe. And, and, uh, I knew it for sure. I was very happy to, to be there. Yeah, it is funny how filmmakers are kind of just wandering around as people at festivals. You know, we all were at uh, Toronto in 2018 when both Bellatar and Lee Cheng Dong were on the platform jury, and we would just see them sitting at the main theater bar all the time. Festivals tend to make a little more, give you more stuff. Uh, in inverse proportion to how important and powerful the festival is. So a festival like Berlin would be so much less likely to make a fuss over you personally mm-hmm. than a smaller festival. Mm-hmm. That that lines up exactly with what I've heard. We uh, The first festival I went to is uh, the Maryland Film Festival, and I know that as a, great repu- as a smaller festival has a great reputation for dealing with film festivals. American indie for American mm-hmm. indie films, it's been right, yeah. for a long time. I've never been at that festival, but mm-hmm. yeah. it was important to like the, the mumblecore people. Of, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. I was just they had their little virtual virtual festival, and I know uh, they interviewed Lawrence Michael Levine for his new film, and I know yeah. he was talking. He both him and the current programmer were talking about how they had that great relationship. That was interesting to hear. Yeah. Larry was definitely like mm-hmm. part of that whole scene when when mm-hmm. I remember Marilyn being so so mm-hmm. uh, important to them and, and Swanberg definitely and yeah other- yeah yeah I've seen I've seen Swanberg there several times yeah. mm. for some reason I was like when I when I found I had the opportunity to do like overseas festivals festivals in other mm. continents I, I I don't know why I wasn't counting on the United States to be there for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 I just feel as if art films are always a little bit of a tricky proposition here. As mm-hmm. it turned out, mm-hmm. a homecoming here was kind of amazing, partly because mm-hmm. my film so fit the pandemic model, to tell you the truth. I don't think it would have been quite right. as festive a homecoming if we were mm-hmm. all like going to theaters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But when it was all happening, I thought, okay, this is just fine, you know. And remember when I got distribution in Spain, I got distribution mm-hmm. in Brazil. Awesome, you know. I mm-hmm. mean, I was, I, I didn't crave necessarily. I mean, I like the United States. I think it's a great film country, mm-hmm. but I didn't necessarily want to want to depend on the United States giving it, you know, the reception mm-hmm. that. I hoped for. As it happened, it did. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I hate to talk, talk like this because 
obviously people have died in this pandemic and you don't want to be casual about it. Right. But, yeah. Right, but it, it was it was so much to the benefit of my movie. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I think Grasshopper I I love the films that they pick up, but they are they're often just kind of a little spottier with where stuff shows up in the United States. Yeah, and that's not for want mm-hmm. of trying, you know. I'm sure, yeah. Like, I I'll, I often will uh, let them know, hey, I'm in D.C. and I'd love to see uh, yada yada. Send them a little email, but they, yeah. They know yeah. their business really well. Yeah. But, you know, mm-hmm. it, I think right. the United States and art, art films mm-hmm. uh, have a kind of a... Yeah love-hate relationship right. you know and so. yeah. a little it's a little tricky yeah. um being an art film distributed in the united states is probably mm-hmm. not like something that you know mm-hmm. too many people would wish on themselves if they had an alternative only only i would wish such a type of thing on myself would have it's such right. ambitions you're beating against the current you know mm-hmm. um but it yeah but it in the case of like 14 i i, I feel a little bit ungrateful for you in saying this because the reception here has been so nice and mm-hmm. I don't know because I, I, I haven't made enough movies to know but uh, I don't know to what extent the reception is really nice because it fell at right near the beginning of the pandemic there were no films in theaters I wasn't competing with mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan it right. might it might be the kind of movie that a lot of people associate with watching in their home anyway at their t- on their TV Mm-hmm. Um, these are not criteria that I necessarily have for myself, but I, and I have no way of knowing to what extent the nice reception that it got with this virtual theatrical release is uh, was mm-hmm. is due to that stuff. Uh, I'll take it. I just don't. Mm-hmm. I don't have the. I don't have the breadth of knowledge to know what would have happened if this were a normal time, and it was going mm-hmm. to theaters. Right. All right. Well, uh, does anyone else have any other questions? I mean, less specific, but I feel like I would be remiss to not just briefly uh, mention my fondness for uh, your part in uh, Matthias Pinero's Hermione oh, and Helena, which I watched recently and just thought it was like a great movie. And like that section with like the questions back and forth, I found like really gripping and just like great job. <laughs> I will second that. I watched just that scene this morning, and Uh, it was great. Well, uh, the whole thing was really fun. I mean, I'm not an actor, but but Augustina was so like so Mm -hmm. tuned in to that, and Mm -hmm. she was really happy. She would like whether she like kind of tried to move closer to the way I was doing it or whatever. I don't know, but she encouraged me. She like appreciated the the moments where I was just able only to be myself and to respond to things. Uh, you know, she was completely supportive and Matias was really sure that he wanted me to, to have that role. So I, I have no ability to judge the quality of the performance myself, but mm-hmm. those are nice people to work with. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I'll like... go ahead. Colin. I was say like half that cast is like, Maddie Diop and like Dustin Guy Deffa, just like other directors, and like mm-hmm. everyone's really good. So, I mean, it's yeah. like he just mm-hmm. had that magic. I think yeah. that Matthias was like looking for a kind of a, a type, which I think I understand because I do that too, rather than necessarily trying to 
you know, get Meryl Streep or whatever. He was he wanted to make really sure that this lost American father um, didn't look like, you know, a, a mm. California beach bum or something. He exactly. wanted to yeah. make sure thought mm. that I might look a little bit like I could be her father. My like Arabic background kind of fit in a little mm. bit with with, you know, hers. And he was going on the basis of that. He was going on the basis of an instinct about mm-hmm. about what he wanted. And he knew me, and he, you know, he probably didn't care that I wasn't like an, a, an accomplished actor or an actor at all. Um, so he he went that kind of gut feeling that he had is something I I think I also try to have that sometimes when I'm casting. I'll maybe just end by saying uh, I watched the unspeakable act last night and the little exchange that uh, Matthew has with his friend about uh, (laughs) DeLillo and uh, then Pynchon and Foster Wallace. That is exactly the type of exchange that I would have had as I was moving from uh, high school into college. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) The most targeted I ever felt by a film, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, and then that also, was... then also, I had the other piece of uh, the therapist was named Linda, which was the name of my longtime therapist. Oh, yeah, so that's recent. It was oh, funny oh, having both of those characters have a little cool. piece of me. Well, uh, but yeah, Carrie, Carrie left really did a great job with that therapist. And actually, the mm-hmm. guy that the guy that was in that conversation with Sky in the Speak Black, mm-hmm. he became a somewhat better known actor than most of the people in the cast. His name's Mike okay. Face. He, I think, uh, was in the Broadway oh, right. play. Yeah, he was in Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah, I think it was Tony nominated. He was yeah. in what? Dear Evan Hansen, I think. Oh, is that a play? Yeah, the yeah. Uh, the musical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was. He had like a a, a lot of like prestigious plays, and he also right. was in a good movie, um, a Grief of Others by Patrick Wang. Oh, I've um, been curious about Patrick Wang for a while. Yeah, I don't know all his movies in particular. Mm-hmm. I don't know that first mm-hmm. one in the family, which people mm-hmm. likes him. But this was the second mm-hmm. one, and Mike was the lead oh, right. in that yeah. one. That's and right, it, and he's yeah, he's in uh, he's in West Side Story. He's going to be in the new West Side Story. Oh, right. is he? Yeah. yeah. See, I'm a little bit out of it on the festival yeah. on the theater scene, but uh, mm-hmm. but he uh, he did okay for himself. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Is there is there anything you want to plug? No, I would like to plug Hong Sang Soo, but you guys <laughs> get it for me already. Is yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess we should say. I don't think we have outright stated it. Like many of these movies are now available for like a rental from many like uh, independent theaters, and you can find like I think Lincoln Center maybe still has all of them. Maybe not by the end of this week when we post. Yeah. The but but there's other. I know like my. One of my local indie theaters like just got a couple of them this week, and they're they're twelve dollar rentals that you can do to help support your your local theater that also uh, see those movies. So it's a, it's a great way to to see those movies. Yeah, and it's a really interesting time because a lot of these uh, virtual runs don't end quite as promptly as the real ones did because it's not like theater or anything for something new coming. Right. So maybe 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 it'll be like the season of Hong for a little while. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm all and for. same. Yep, same with uh, fourteen. You can find it through a number of theaters. It's still playing or on uh, projector.tv, which I know Grasshopper just set up. Yep, uh, it's like probably still like eighty-five different theaters where you could click mm-hmm. on their logo and the, the the money gets split with the theater. 
So, yeah, thank you so much for uh, talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at Can I Kick It or on Letterboxd at uh, Can I Kick It. And then the letters O and D is in the last two letters of pod because we (laughs) could not fit that P in there. Uh, Yes. And then uh, uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Letterboxd at uh, JP Glickweber. And uh, you can also find links to follow all of us in the show description. Yeah, um, I'm at Andy T. Germ uh, on all the things, Letterboxd, Twitter specifically. Based on what we discussed earlier about Hong Sang Su's uh, improvisation style getting people drunk, I think I'm going to start organizing a petition for him to direct the next season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So I'll probably (laughs) uh, get going on that soon. (laughs) Good luck with that. Yeah. That was, uh, like, every review I saw of Like You Know It All was just, like, he's the, you know, Korean Larry David. Right. Um, <laughs> he's going to shoot I'm... that one down on general principle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Just be> perverse. <laughs> uh, I'm Clatchley. Yeah, Clatchley on Twitter, Letterboxd. And in the spot where I usually plug an old movie that I have watched for the first time, I'm going to pivot and plug something that usually – are. In the past, I have been adverse to, but within this week, I've got into wine. Get into <laughs> wine, everybody. It's great stuff. <laughs> a little more specific. I got a, nice, I got a nice red blend from Cooper and Thief that was aged in bourbon barrels. What and is this? a Spanish white that I uh, don't have the name of right now, but it's great. It's crisp, tart. Just I'm into wine, everybody. Get used to it. <laughs> Emilio? What a development for really our podcast and friendship. Uh, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at I am left alone. You can follow me on Letterboxd at I left alone. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> All right. And with that, I'll go ahead and release our audience. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Baby, 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 baby. Well, now the only time I ever see All right, so everyone uh, ready to go? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Okay. I'm recording, right? Yes. Okay. Five, four, three, two. Wow. That might be our best one ever. <laughs> <laughs> Not even as a joke. <laughs>